Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Today's guest is one of the most popular writers living today. He began writing at a young age, selling monster stories to other neighborhood children for pennies, dramatic readings included. He sold his first story at age 21, studied writing in college, and worked as a journalism instructor before becoming a full-time writer in 1979. He worked as a story editor for Twilight Zone and over the years has written many science fiction and fantasy novels that have sold tens of millions of copies worldwide. He's best known for his A Song of Ice and Fire series, which was adapted into the hit television series Game of Thrones by HBO. So, George R.R. R. Martin, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to, glad to be here. Now, recently, you were at, at Thriller Fest receiving the uh, Honorary Thriller Master Award, and our paths crossed... Briefly, I heard in an interview that you did up there that you mentioned how much you loved stories growing up where the end was not predictable. Did that really help to influence the way that you tell stories today? Yes, I, I think it certainly did. Um, you know, I think we write the stories that we want to read in some sense. Um, I watched, uh, of course, I read a lot of comic books when I was a kid, and then I read science fiction and fantasy and horror stories, um, as well as comic books when I got a little little older. And we watched a lot of television. And I remember in particular my mother, when we were watching uh, television episodes, would always predict what was going to happen. And, you know, we'd, we'd just be shortly into the uh, the sitcom or the drama, and she'd, she'd say, oh, um, you know, th- this is going to happen next, or this is, and sure enough, it would happen. And I kind of learned that, uh, that thing from her, and it, it enabled me, I think, quite an early age to see how so many stories are so very, very predictable. And then, I, of course, I noticed that in my writing as well as television and film. And honestly, I found it boring. Um, yeah. I still find it boring when I pick up a book and I read the first chapter or the first couple chapters and I know exactly where the book is going and then it goes there without any twists or surprises or um, anything unusual, then I, I yawn. I mean, it's, it, it right. just seems, uh, I mean, what's the point? I love stories that surprise me. Um, I, I love stories that take me to places where I did not expect to, to go, that uh, shock me and uh, twist around and mess with my mind and engage my emotions. And some of the comic books that I read as a, as a kid, uh, particularly the stuff at Marvel by Stan Lee, who, who, uh, whose work was much less predictable than the stuff coming out from D.C. at the same time in the uh, early 60s. And, uh, you know, also books like Lord of the Rings. I mean, that was a book that had a profound influence on me. And I still remember the scenes in the, mi- in the Minds of Moria when Gandalf died. Um, that, you know, that really set me really. Gandalf can't die. <laughs> Gandalf is obviously one of the central characters here. Uh, right. What the hell is going to happen? He's the one who knew what they were doing. <laughs> the rest of them were... were like children or, yeah, or kind of at least yeah. like very naive uh, people who, who really, they had no magic, they didn't know how the world worked, uh, they didn't even know the geography, and now their leader was gone. What was going to happen next? I mean, it, it engaged me, it thrilled me. Now, of course, Tolkien brought it back a book later, which I've always been one of the problems I had with Lord of the Rings, as much as I love it. Um, yeah. But there was a gap between books where, you know, where for most of a year I thought that Gandalf was actually dead, and and that was just an amazing reveal. And I like books that do that. I like things that are not predictable. Well, I don't think anyone would accuse your stories of being predictable. So I think that that gap, like what you said, that moment between 
where you, you say, oh, what? I can't believe that this happened. And then um, where twists occur and the moments between those, I think, are some of the most satisfying for me when I read stories. To, to make a prediction, in a sense, it's almost like readers want to make a prediction, but they don't want it to be right. They want to be surprised. But you have to, you have to surprise them fairly. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. obviously, you can, you can throw anything into a story, but it doesn't necessarily make it a satisfactory story. You have to put in foreshadowing. You have to have all the pieces there. You have to lay the foundation before you can uh, build the, the tower. And um, that's, the, that's the art of it. That's the skill of it. That's uh, not always easy. Now, in Poetics um, by Aristotle, he mentions that stories need to be unexpected and inevitable in the sense that those surprises come, but when we look back at the logic of the story, we realize that was really inevitable, but I didn't realize it when it was coming. And I think that today we might just call those stories with a twist, but I think those are, those are wonderful stories and wonderful moments within stories where it takes us by surprise but satisfies us while it does so. Yeah, I hadn't heard that quote before, but that's a good quote. I'll have to uh, steal that for future interviews. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so in your advice to aspiring writers, uh, you sometimes encourage them to write short stories for the science fiction and fantasy market. Why, why is that? Why are short stories a good place to start? Well, first of all, science fiction and fantasy is a little different than uh, many other uh, genres out there and that we, we still have a fairly robust short story market. Yeah. Um, and that was certainly true when I, uh, when I broke in in the early 70s. We had a half a dozen magazines and a number of original anthologies, all of which were buying short stories. So at various points, you had anywhere from um, six to 20 potential short story markets. Um, that you could send your story to um, and hopefully get it purchased. Um, short stories are a good way of uh, learning your craft. Um, you know, I think as a young writer starting out, you, you haven't necessarily found your voice yet. You don't know all the tricks of the trade, um, but you're, you're reading, hopefully you're reading a lot of material by other writers, and you're seeing what they do, and then you're feeling, well, let me try that too. Let me, let me see if that works. Let me try this thing. Let me try the other thing. Let me write a story in present tense. Let me write a second-person story. I mean, we, we all go through these things when we're, when we're young. Oh, here's a writer I really admire. How does he do it? Let me, let me try to see if I can do it the way he does. And short stories are a, a good way to experiment to that and see what, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, um, what's easy, what's difficult, um, you know, to expand your, your craft. Also, um, if you succeed in publishing them, then you build up your name. Uh, you know, in my case, I published, uh, as you said in the introduction, I published my first sto short story professionally in 1971. I didn't publish a novel until 1977, so, but in the intervening six years, I published, I don't know, 30, 40 short stories, a lot of short stories and novelettes and novellas. Uh, I was getting progressively longer and longer uh, as I gained confidence, and my name was appearing everywhere. I was in every Abbott magazine. I was in most of the original anthologies. Um, so when I finally did come to write that novel, it was not just, uh, oh, here's a novel by somebody that you've never heard of. It was the long-awaited first novel by this sure. well-known short story writer. So it, it gave me, you know, a big advantage over all of the other writers who were publishing their first novel the same year that I published my first novel. So, and all of these things are still true. Uh, yes, it, the field has changed since uh, 1971. Uh, many of the magazines and original anthologies that I sold to back in the 70s are, are gone. They're dead or they're dying. But in their place, all these new markets have arisen, these uh, e-magazines uh, on the Internet. And uh, we probably have even more markets now than, than we did then, but they're different markets, and some of them don't have an actual print component anymore. But you can still do that. You can still build up your reputation and learn your craft by doing short stories. And then eventually, 
when you're confident enough and then tackle that novel because if you actually want to make a living as a writer um you have to write novels i mean short stories are are great and i love reading short stories i love writing short stories but you really can't make a living uh from them so uh, not that making a living is all of that i mean that's one question that uh, uh should be should be emphasized here um you know, you can be an important writer, a great writer, and not a full-time writer. You can have a day job, and I did for the first decade of my life, and there are other people who who have uh, day jobs and other professions for their entire career, and they write they write their stories as a secondary career or as a on weekends at nights, and that's perfectly fine, too, if that what is what you want to do. I, made I like how you emphasize yeah. a full-time writer, but it's not necessarily uh, um, obligatory. Yeah, no, and I like how you emphasize how much time and effort it really takes to hone your craft. It, I feel like today people are a bit more impatient. Maybe they've always been just as impatient as they are today, but they want to get their stuff out there. They don't want to get rejected, and so... Maybe after one or two rejection letters or after fumbling around for it, they say, well, I'll just self-publish my story and, and send it out there and see who reads it. And instead of really going through the process of, of taking years to hone and craft their storytelling. Well, you have to. I mean, you have to take the rejections. The rejections are part of the, the game here. Um, yeah. You know, um, in, in any profession, they're... Uh, you're not guaranteed instant success or you're not guaranteed success in the long run. Um, you just have to keep trying and you have to keep getting hit in the mouth. I mean, you know, if you're a football player, uh, not every play is going to be a touchdown. Uh, sometimes you're going to get tackled behind the line of scrimmage or sometimes you're going to drop the pass that would have won the game and you just got to get up off the ground and try it again and try to do it better next time. Um, I got a lot of rejections in my in my early years, um, but I got sales as well. But I had a few stories. I mean, I had one that got more than forty rejections, and uh, you know, it took me. I think I wrote it. Uh, I sold it like ten years after I uh, I first wrote it. But I I just kept stubbornly sending it out and sending it out and sending <laughs> it out. And eventually, someone bought it. But uh, you know, I have to stick. A thick file of, uh, of rejection slips and rejection letters to uh, to show for it. I have to admit, you know, I am I'm a, a baby boomer. I'm I'm I've been in this game a long time. So the whole self-publishing um, phenomenon is something that I don't really claim to have any expertise at. It is certainly um, something that's available for. Uh, writers today uh, and I think um, maybe eventually it will become the prevailing way to do it but I'm, I still think if you can sell to a traditional publisher you should sell to a traditional publisher um, I mean I'm a writer uh, yeah. I write stories I make up stories I prefer to have other people handle all the rest of it, select the cover art, hire the cover artist, do the copy editing, do the publicity, you know, set up interviews and uh, send out review copies. Uh, if you're self-publishing, you, you have to do all that stuff for yourself. Um, and I guess some people enjoy doing all that stuff for themselves. Or, or they think that, um, you know, economically it makes more sense for them to do that. Um, and they don't have to give the publisher a big cut of the uh, of the income. Um but I would not like that. I would rather yeah. serve my time for making up the stories and, and you know, let things like uh, cover art and uh, publicity be handled by people who are professional at handling cover art and publicity. Yeah, I look at it the same way when people ask me if they should self-publish their story. I say, well, really ask yourself if you want to self-market the story because you'll be doing all those things that you just mentioned. And if that's really your passion, then maybe it is a good route for you. But if you just want to be writing the stories, then probably a traditional house is more is more going to fit in with those goals. And you know, the the truth is that uh, while there are definitely s- some success stories in the world of uh, 
self-publishing. Um, a lot of those success stories are established writers. Like I have, um, I have a friend. Um, I won't name any names, but uh, a friend who's been writing, writing and publishing science fiction and fantasy uh, almost as long as I have, and he tells me he makes about fifty thousand dollars a year from uh, um, self-publishing his backlist. Um, which is fine, but it is his backlist. He, he yeah. before he began self-publishing, he had a well-established name and a decades-long track record. So these stories are, are, you know, by someone that we we know, and he's still publishing his new books with a traditional publisher. Um, for a new writer who has no backlist, who's just trying to break in, um, you got a you got a book out there that. Maybe it'll catch on, but the odds are that it won't. I mean, I go to a lot of yeah. science fiction fantasy conventions, and you sometimes enter the uh, you know the dealer's room where bookstores and all that are selling their goods, and you see self-published authors who have, who have purchased a table, and they're sitting behind you know, huge stacks of their own books, and people are hurrying past trying to avoid making eye contact with them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're desperately trying to sell this book that they have, you know, all these copies of, and no one's ever heard of them, no one's heard of their book. Yes, occasionally you can break through, but most people don't. So there's, you know, rejection comes in many flavors. You can send your your book out to Simon & Schuster or Random House or Macmillan, and you get a rejection slip for it, or you can self-publish your book. And then you get rejections from the readers in, in the sense that they don't buy it and they yeah. just ignore it. And you find out that you, you sell 30, 37 copies after putting in all this work to, you know, get a cover and put it out and et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting times in the world of literature and fiction. It sure is. Yeah. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen where where all of this will be when it all settles down. But it probably never will settle down. It never <laughs> Now, when you think back to the stories that you've written, um, what would you say is maybe a short story, maybe a novella or novel, that is the one that you're most proud of? I don't know. Do you, do you have kids? <laughs> <laughs> That's like yeah, saying... I have three daughters. <laughs> Which of your daughters are you most proud of? <laughs> Dude, That's a good the point. One you like yeah. more than the other two? I mean, you know, um, sure. I have I have like a dozen dozen novels, um, probably like uh, thirty, forty anthologies that I've edited over the years, and I don't know, a hundred hundred pieces of short fiction, and yeah. Yeah, some of them are terrible. How do you choose? Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially some of the early work, I was still kind of uh, experimenting and learning my trade, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'm proud of. Uh, Fever Dream, Armageddon Rag, some of my earlier earlier standalone novels, uh, some of my award winners like Sand Kings and uh, Song for Laia, some of my award losers. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, I've lost as many awards, I've actually more awards than I've won over the years. And of course, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, which is the thing that most people know me for. Yeah. Now, when, when you start developing a story or a scene, what tends to come first for you, the character or the conflict, the protagonist maybe or the plot, however you look at it? You know, it really varies from story to story, but uh, yeah. probably more than anything else is the, is the characters. Um, sometimes I, I, I just have a, a scene in my head, a, a, a bit of dialogue, um, um, a visual, like um, A Song of Ice and Fire began with uh, the scene where uh, Bran goes out with his father to, to see a man beheaded and they find the direwolf pups in the, in the summer snows. I mean, that, that whole chapter came to me like from out of nowhere. I don't know. I was writing an entirely different book and suddenly I had that chapter in my head and I had it so vividly that I had to sit down and write it. And at that time, I didn't know who any of these people were or what the world was, but um, the, the moment was there. The scene was there and I, I followed it. I've often yeah, said, okay. though, that uh, there, there are two types of writers. Um, there are the architects and the gardeners. And, you know, an architect... Um, 
like an architect in in real life. He he plans everything ahead of time. You know, he he draws up the blueprints. He knows you know how many rooms the the house is going to have and what it's going to be made of. Is it going to be brick? Is it going to be wood? Is it um, going to be stone? Uh, he knows what the roof is and and where the plumbing goes and. Uh, uh, how it's going to be heated, and is there going to be a basement, is there going to be an attic, all of this stuff, where the windows go, where the doors go. Uh, he plans all of this ahead of time, and he hasn't driven a nail yet. He hasn't bought a, a plank of wood. But he, but before he starts building, everything is worked out. And there are writers who work that way. And then there are the gardeners who dig a hole and they put in the seed, which might be a character or a um, bit of business or a setting, and then they kind of water it, in the case of writers, with their blood and sweat, and they see what grows up, and they sort of shape it and follow it as it grows. I think uh, no writer is 100% architect or 100% gardener, but, but they do tend to lean one way or another, and I definitely lean to the gardener side, uh, along with people like uh, Tolkien, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, I follow the story where it, where it takes me. If I tried to do an architect thing, and I have many friends who are very successful architects in that sense, but if, if I tried to do it, it, would, it wouldn't work for me. I, you know, once I plotted out a story to that degree, I kind of have lost interest in it. I, I, then I would never write it because I sort of know how it all ends. I want to be surprised, as, along with the writers, by where my imagination and where the characters take me. That's uh, that's great, and I love the analogy. Uh, often I've had guests on on the show who will talk about outlining versus organic writing, and and I had um, Jeffrey Deaver on one time, and he writes about a 200-page outline before he starts the um, before he starts the story, and then you know you have other authors like yourself or others who just try to listen to the story as it unfolds, and I find it fascinating to hear the different approaches and see what works for different people. Well, you know, there's a, a poem by Rudyard Kipling, the, the Neolithic Age, it has the line in it, there are nine and sixty ways of constructing tribal lays, and every single one of them is right. <laughs> so take that for your mantra. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So, in your stories involve lots of orchestration, really, of different characters and different settings, all undergoing important events, sometimes all at the same time. How do you pull this off? What techniques can you share for other writers who are trying to balance and orchestrate the lots that's going on in their stories? Well, not all my stories are like that, but certainly uh, yeah. Song of Ice and Fire is. Um, you know, some of my stories are very linear. One one point of view character and that you follow throughout. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's not easy, especially for a gardener. Um, you know, my my technique involves a lot of rewriting and you know following the characters. They're they're you know treacherous sons of bitches. Those characters, <laughs> blind alleys and dead ends, and you know I I write a chapter or two and say, oh no, this isn't going to work. I, I got to go back. I got to rewrite this. I got to. Oh, here's why I went wrong, and then I take a different direction. That may be one reason why I'm comparatively slow uh, compared to many other writers. I mean, as long as I've been in the business and as many stories as I've written, I have friends or colleagues who broke in the same time as I do, and they have a body of work that is, you know, ten times as long as mine because they're they don't have those problems. However, the way I work has worked for me, so uh, yeah. I'm going to continue to um, <laughs> to work it that way. Um, yeah, but for an aspiring writer starting in, you know, they may want to try see see what finds, see if they can find what works for them. Now, you mentioned uh, point of view, um, and uh, and the stories that you write do tend to have one point of view, sometimes per chapter, and, and sometimes, as you mentioned, you know, throughout the whole story. Can you tell us um, what leads you to choose a certain character's point of view? Or, again, does it just come from listening to the story, as you were mentioning earlier? Well, you... you uh, it, it's can be easy on a on a shorter story where you're you know you're telling the story of one particular incident or one particular series of events and you choose a your central character he's he's your yeah. 
eyes and ears who, who take you through that. Now, when you're trying to do an epic like Song of Ice and Fire, it requires multiple points of view. Sure. Um, I mean, there are two ways to do it, actually. I mean, you, you can go with an omniscient point of view, which very few writers do anymore. But, uh, you know, if you go back in, in time, in the history of literature, there was a time when, when the omniscient point of view was very, um, very popular. And, and essentially, when, when you're doing that, you're writing as God. I mean, you know, you know everything that all the characters are thinking, and you tell the reader everything that uh, all the characters are doing and thinking, even if they're separated. And, you know, you can even go from one character to another, sentence by sentence, um, even if they're far apart or, or whatever. Um, that's kind of fallen out of fashion, and I, I don't like... Um, I don't think omniscient point of view is as, as effective as the, what I use, which is mostly, I've, I've done some stories in the uh, first person over the years, but mm-hmm. mostly I use third person, but extremely tight third person. I, I never uh, slip into the omniscient point of view, I, and I structure the point of view changes, as you say, chapter by chapter, never paragraph by paragraph. I, I, I favor that because I think that's the way we really experience life. I mean, hmm. you, you're, you experience life through your own eyes and ears and your senses. I mean, you're, you are sitting wherever you're sitting right now. I'm not sure where you're located physically, but you're sitting in an office and a studio, and you're seeing the things around you. And there could be right outside your building right now, there could be a, a, a huge auto accident happening. Uh, someone could be being murdered. Um, you don't know. You don't know what's going on out there. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're in your world. You're only seeing what you're seeing. Um, there could be someone sneaking up behind you with a knife and uh, <laughs> punch it into your back. You don't know. You're not facing in that direction. You're facing in the other direction. That's the way real people experience real life. And I think that works for putting the reader and making them feel as if they're not just reading words on a page, but they are experiencing events. They are living the story rather than just reading the story. And that is always my goal, to uh, to make the reader experience the story, to make the reader live the events of the story as if it was actually happening to him. Uh, so for that, I think third-person point of view works best. Now, if you have a big, big story like uh, like what I'm doing with Songs of Ice and Fire, however, if you're not going to use omniscient, then you need to interweave a number of points of view, which is what I'm trying to do. I yeah. mean, let's say you wanted to write a, a, a novel about World War II, um, and you really wanted to, to do World War II. You just didn't want to do the experiences of bill during world war ii you know you 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 wanted to like cover the whole war well you need uh, sure you need to see what is being decided in hitler's bunker and in the white house with fdr and with churchill and in in england you need point of view to give you access to that but you also need bill who gets drafted and gets sent to the to the european front and well what about the pacific front you need to cover that too so you need a character who's in a, a submarine or who's fighting in the sands uh, of iwo jima and raising a flag you know you need a whole cast of characters to tell a big story like world war Two. um and so in a sense that's what i'm trying to do with a song of ice and fire and some of the other bigger things that i've that I've covered. Yeah, that's excellent. And um, that leads uh, well into the next question, and that is really this idea of world building. Um, can you give us any insights or secrets to this concept of really creating this universe, this world out of your imagination for other people that might want to embark on such a kind of such a storytelling trek? Well, it's of course, um, in science fiction fantasy, world building is especially important. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it's important in other other genres and other fields of literature too. But obviously, if you're writing a contemporary story set in New York City or or Los Angeles, um, most of the readers will know that. 
You know, you can you can just say, you know, Bill was walking across Times Square. You don't have to stop and describe what Times Square is, um, because we all know what Times Square is. We have these pictures in our head. Maybe we visited Times Square. If not, we've certainly seen it in motion pictures and television shows and read about it in other in other books. So you can just say that the character is in Times Square. But if I say my character is walking through um, the mudgate of King's Landing. Well, what the hell is the mudgate of King's Landing? <laughs> uh, you know, we haven't experienced that, at least not when we first opened the book. So you have to establish it. You have to uh, bring that forward. Um, and the most successful works of fantasy and, and science fiction, I think, do that very well. Um, a setting. You know, when you when you're learning about writing and about the elements of fiction uh, back in high school or college, and they'll tell you the elements of fiction, you know, character, plot, theme, etc. Setting is always in the list, but usually it's it's at the end. But I don't think that's true for science fiction fantasy. It, it needs to be much more prominent. You know, Tolkien created Middle-earth. Middle-earth is a very real place to me. Of course, it doesn't exist. Uh, but I, I know Middle Earth. I know the Hobbit. I know what Minas Tirith looks like and the Mines of Moria. Tolkien has taken me there. He has created that world. And um, the most successful works of, of science fiction and fantasy do that. They create these these wonderfully rich, imaginative, fascinating uh, worlds that uh, that we can travel to. Now, you mentioned uh, a minute ago, you know, high school, English class, or wherever it is, when we first learn about these aspects of writing, and one of them is theme. Uh, now, now, people tend to read a lot into your, your stories. Um, are the ideas of symbolism or theme or imagery a big deal for you, or are you focused instead on simply telling the story? Well, I'm... I I mean, both, really. I mean, I'm, obviously, yeah. I'm focused on telling a story, but there is a theme there, and but it's complex. I mean, I think it was one of the old movie moguls who said, uh, you know, if you have a message, then you use Western Union. Um, you know, if the theme of your story can be summarized in a sentence, then maybe you should just summarize it in a sentence. Yeah. But that's not to say that there are not themes and messages within fiction that emerge when, uh, hopefully when you read the work and absorb it and uh, think about it. I know Flannery O'Connor once said that if you can state the theme of a story, if you can separate it from the story itself, she said you can be sure it's not a very good story, that stories are a yeah, way I to say there's something. A, there's an element of truth to that, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That stories are a way to say something that can't be said any other way, and it takes every word of the story to say what the meaning is. And I think it's refreshing. I think sometimes people go on these theme hunts, and I know sometimes with my books they'll say, well, what does this represent, or what's this theme here? And I'm thinking, it doesn't represent anything. It's a killer, or, or you know, it's a detective. He doesn't represent politics or anything along those lines, but... But um, I know there's, uh, there's just a lot of fans of your work, and people are kind of always looking for what might be meant by this and where it will go. And, and, uh, and as a gardener, I, I don't know if that's flattering, or does that ever get distracting? Oh, I, guess, uh, I think it is flattering. I mean, if, if yeah. people engage with your, your imaginative world and your characters so much that they talk about them and debate about them and argue about yeah. the, this one and that one, I think that's uh, that's all very good. That's one of the one of the best uh, compliments you can have. Uh, that's your book has become real to them, and your book has engaged them on a not only on an emotional level but on an intellectual level, and uh, is evidently complex and uh, profound enough to uh, warrant uh, debate. I mean, we don't have to argue about works that are very simplistic, where, okay, this guy's the hero, this guy's the villain. Good yeah. is good and evil is bad, right? Okay, right, got that message. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's like uh, you, you, want to, you want a little more than that. So I do find it, um, I do find it complimentary. And, you know, sometimes some of the theories and the things that fans come up with are completely wrong. Um, sometimes they're right. 
And sometimes you even learn something about your own work. I mean, the, nice. the writer, the writer will sometimes not be completely conscious of everything he or she is doing in, in their story. And, you know, you, you read a piece of criticism of something you wrote and say, you know, my God, you know, he's right. I didn't realize <laughs> that, but uh, he's, he's found something there. And I've had that experience once or twice in my career. Now, when you mentioned a minute ago about good being good, evil being evil, uh, I think your stories are really nuanced in areas where people aren't cookie-cutter by any means. Um, the good guy has, you know, evil you know, thoughts at times, or the, the villains or whatever, you know, have redeeming aspects. Is that, uh, you know, is that a purposeful choice of yours, or does that just come naturally to you in the way that you approach the stories you tell? Well, it is a purpose. It is a, a, a deliberate choice, but on the other yeah. hand, I, it does come to me fairly naturally. I mean, even when you go back to my early stuff I wrote in high school and uh, before that, there's a certain complexity to the, the characters. I, I like great characters. I think yeah. human beings are, are complex animals. We're, we're unpredictable. Um, we all have the capacity for good and evil in us, and... Um, you know, there are no real heroes. There, there are people who perform heroic acts, but you know, the comic book, uh, the comic book trope of the uh, the professional hero who goes out every day and uh, you know performs acts of heroism as his day job um, is something that really exists only in in comic books. I mean, we can we can look at people. Uh, who are in certain professions where heroism is sometimes called for, like uh, cops or firefighters, um, but they're not, they're not being heroic every day. They're being heroic when called upon. And all of us uh, have the capacity sometimes in uh, moments of crisis to be heroic when called upon. You know, if a building catches fire, um, who's going to be the hero who's going to help out uh, you know, someone who's injured or, or what that, who's going to, and, and who's just going to be out for his own skin and, and run. You don't know. I mean, when, when we're thrown into these situations, we, we find the truth of that. And people who are perform heroic acts one week, a year later, they may do something terrible. Uh, they may do something selfish. They may do something greedy. We're all these very complex animals, uh, and you know we have our intellect, our emotions, and our belief systems, all of which come together with circumstances. But, but for me, that's the fascination of human beings. I love, I love the complexity of it. The, the cardboard characters who are just, uh, you know, I'm a hero. I'm a villain. I mean, villains are even worse here. Come on, there are no. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, oh, I'm going to go out and perform evil and plunge all the world into darkness. You know, um, but people do do bad things. They do do villainous things. And we can see people who I think are not of the best character and who uh, really do more harm to the world and to the people around them than good. But even those people probably think that there are good reasons for what they do and uh, that they're justified in some sense by some of their actions. And, and even those people, they may love their children or, or their spouses and they may, who knows, do something decent and heroic when you least expect it. So that's the wonder and the glory and the complexity of human beings. And you try to capture that in fiction. Now, um, over the years, as a storyteller, as a writer, uh, as a, all the books that you've written, I know that you used to teach journalism back in the day, and, and I know that you still probably do speak at different events and give writing advice. But I was curious, what have you learned throughout the years of, of actually doing this work that you were never taught? Are there any secrets to writing that, that uh, no one ever shared with you that you wish they had when you were studying it back in the day? Uh, no, really. I don't think there are any <laughs> secrets. I mean, you know, I, you do when you speak at a, a writer's conference or you meet aspiring writers at an event, you do sometimes encounter these, uh, these aspiring writers who are eager to know the secret. Um, yeah. 
and there is no secret. It's you know there are a million books out there about writing, and there are a million writers' conferences and writers' workshops and courses. But it's it's all some of the same stuff that I've said here. Um, yeah. There's no secret handshake. There's no uh, you know <laughs> formula that you can do that'll make you an instantly success. There's no cabal or or you know behind the scenes kind of thing that only if you knew it it would work. Um, it's a matter of hard work and and learning your craft. And persistence. Persistence is a big, big part of it here. You know, I I always tell aspiring writers when I'm at workshops and all that, look, this is not a profession for anyone who needs security. You will never be secure as a writer of fiction. Uh, And my own career has crashed and burned at least twice. Uh, I know other people who have gone through far more ups and downs than me. Um, but you, you persist, you know, you, you have a failure and you say, okay, well that, that didn't work or that worked in some limited way. And then you go on and you tell the next story, you tell the next book, you, you keep at it and there's no guarantee of success, but you know, you have to keep coming up to the plate and taking a swing and trying to get better, you know, never, never think you're good enough. Uh, always try to get better, make the next story, the best one you've ever told, um, and, and persist. I, a lot of people who fail as writers, um, fail because they give up, you know, they, yeah. they can't take the rejections anymore. Um, or it could be a very, <laughs> a very practical reason, like uh, they're about to be evicted and become homeless, so they need to get a <laughs> job that'll uh, actually allow them to pay their rent. Um, all of this is a is a factor, and mind you, failure is also uh, success and failure is not easily defined in a profession like fiction writing, which involves elements of both art and commerce. I mean, Herman Herman Melville, you know, um, had a couple successful books, and then he wrote Moby Dick, and it was a huge failure. And uh, he probably died thinking, well, I'm a failed writer. But, you know, Moby Dick has gone on to become pretty, uh, pretty well-known and successful, and one of those books that defines uh, American literature. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby, was a commercial failure. Um, and yet now it's one of the greatest novels in, in the history of, uh, American novels. Um, on the other hand, there were people who were contemporaries with Melville and Fitzgerald who wrote best-selling books those years, and we don't remember them anymore. Their books are gone, their names are vanished. So who was the success and who was the failure? How do you define it? What a, what a, what a, is it just how much money you make and how many copies you sell? Or are you looking to be part of the culture, be part of the literature, tell a story that is meaningful? Um, I don't know. I think both of them are, have elements of truth. It's, it's nice if you can have both, if you can, you know, write novels that will become part of the canon and will be remembered long after you're dead and at the same time make enough money to live on and have a nice house <laughs> and drive a car. It's good if you can have both, but uh, sometimes you can't. Um, so that's a, it's a tough, tough gig, this writing game. Yeah, there are no guarantees except that it's going to continue to be a challenge, I think. Um, that's right. Yeah. Now, you write... Uh, okay, so in, this, in the fields of science fiction and fantasy... Um, how do, I don't know how to say, like, does personal experience, your own personal life, find its way in, in, in ways into your stories? I know some people think, oh, in certain genres, personal experiences are more important than others, but there are a lot of resonant emotional moments that each of us have in our lives. And I was just curious how those might make their way into the stories that you tell. Well, for me, yes. Um, it, they, they're they're what makes the the characters in the story uh, true and come sure. alive. Um, you know, they they tell you when you start writing, uh, write what you know. And when I first heard that advice, I was I didn't like it at all because I wanted to write <laughs> fantasy. Obviously, I've yeah. never I've never um, you know been a 
been a prince or, or uh, um, I've never traveled through outer space in a spaceship. Uh, I've never met an alien or an elf. Um, so I didn't know that. But on the other hand, that's the imaginative elements. What you need to find the emotional truth at the core of your characters. And uh, you look at my characters in a, a Song of Ice and Fire. So uh, I'm not a dwarf. I've never been an eight-year-old girl. I've never been an exiled princess with a dragon egg. Um, but there's an emotional truth to the to the journeys of each of those characters that is drawn from my own experience and and my own emotions and feelings and the things I have observed in, in living my life. So you, you have to find the truth within yourself to make your characters true. Now, uh, sometimes when you envision your own stories, um, are there any times where um, other people have brought a story to life in a certain way. Maybe it's the television show or maybe the cover art for a, a new book of yours or something where it gave you an insight into your story and you went, man, I never thought of it that way, but that's really in intriguing. Well, I think I said earlier that sometimes, you know, when reading criticism or commentary oh, yeah. fans, uh, you, you have that feeling. I can't say I've ever gotten it from a cover illustration or whatever, but, uh, yeah, sure. you can, that does occur. Not frequently, but it does occur. Now, I read one of the essays that you wrote on fantasy, and I'm just going to read a little excerpt from it and let you comment. Um, I really love how you phrase things here. You said there's something old and true in fantasy that speaks to something deep within us, to the child who dreamt that one day he would hunt the forests of the night and feast beneath the hollow hills and find a love to last forever somewhere south of Oz, and north of Shangri-La. What are your, what, when you wrote that, um, did you feel sort of like you were encapsulating the dream that you want um, other writers to have or the dream that you had maybe when you were reading fantasy growing up? Well, it was certainly the dream that I had. Yeah. I mean, um, I was born and raised in Bayonne, New Jersey. Um, our family was blue collar and, uh, my father went through periods of unemployment. We lived in a public housing project. We didn't own a car. We never went anywhere. Um, so there was a hunger in me to see the wider world. I mean, my world was yeah. five blocks long. I lived on first street. I went to school on fifth street. I walked those five blocks back and forth for, you know, a decade. Um, and yet I read these, these books and, and, uh, science fiction, fantasy books, comic books too. And I could go to Mars or Barsoom or Trantor. I could visit Middle Earth or, or Robert E. Howard's Hyborian Age and, uh, see the greater world. And there was a hunger in me for the greater world that reading fantasy and science fiction fed and I, I try to do the same thing and that is something that I think fantasy does do I mean I would love to visit uh, Minas Tirith um, and I would probably much rather visit Minas Tirith than Lincoln, Nebraska <laughs> fantasy has wonders in it that the real world doesn't, uh, doesn't have yeah, I think Tolkien wrote something, you know, very similar to that in his uh, in an essay on fairy stories or fairy tales, and he had said that people call his work escapist in sort of a um, derogatory way, and he says, but but for someone who lives in prison, isn't the most rational thing to do to want to escape? And he talks about the prisons that we have in this world, and. I've always loved that that our imaginations sometimes are the place, place, the place, the best place that we can go, depending on where we are in this world. And that longing to go there is what drives us to read and tell great stories. Yeah, yeah. Tolkien was a pretty smart guy. <laughs> well, George, thanks so much for uh, being with me here today. Uh, I really have enjoyed the conversation. Um, just the 
the frank advice that you have and also, you know, just so a, a glimpse into the gardening world that you've created so many great stories from. Um, is there a place for people to follow your career online, or what's the best place for people to connect with, maybe if you're doing a book signing or a public event? Well, I have a, I have a uh, blog, uh, which I call not a blog, uh, which they can find online, and there are also uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook things that are mostly echo the stuff that I put in my, my not a blog. Uh, so there's that, and uh, there, are, there are also numerous websites uh, devoted to particular aspects of my uh, work. Of course, there's the, uh, a number of sites devoted to uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, or the TV version of it, Game of Thrones. Um, the, the fan site Westeros uh, is probably the oldest of those and the, and the biggest, and uh, it's got tons of um, hundreds of thousands of posts and fans. It's been going, God, like 20 years or something like wow. that. And if people want to debate uh, aspects of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones and interact with other fans, that's a great place to go. Um, and also my wildcard series, which is uh, hopefully going to be coming to television soon, uh, that I edit, and there are like 40 world-class writers who participate in that. It's sort of a... Um, gritty science fiction version of a superhero world, a little more realistic and uh, darker than Marvel or DC, but with some great characters and some great writers. Um, there's uh, Wild Cards World, which is our website for that, and there's a Facebook area where they can talk about the, the Wild Card characters. And, uh, so there's a lot of places where you can find out what I'm doing these days. And, Excellent. Uh, my website, I do have an official website. So on that, it also has a box that's my next appearance, and they can find out where I'm going to be next and where I'm going to be, you know, two years from now. That sounds great. Um, and so thanks to everyone for listening. For more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. Thanks goes to Suspense Radio for hosting us all these many years. And friends, always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.